The smart money back then was that the large traditional pharmaceutical firms had a model, had a mindset, and had a whole set of processes and infrastructure and people who grew up and got promoted thinking that way would never be able to adapt. And that led to investors coming in. And this was really the, the, the accelerant for what we know today as the modern venture capital industry. Well, I'm not too sure what you were up to last Sunday, but you set another record for downloads for the Instec London podcast on a single day. And we're all heading into a month of lockdown again here in the UK. And I guess wherever you're listening from, you too are going to be restricted on what you get up to. But the great thing about audio, of course, is you can at least get outside for a bit, plug in and still keep up with what's going on in the world. And with face-to-face events not going to be happening for at least another few months, we're getting our creative juices flowing here in Stack London to keep our community engaged and connected into 2021. Matthew Grant here, and this week I am talking to Paul Mang. Paul currently heads up Guidewise Analytical and Data Business, but his career is wide-ranging and he's invested in and mentored startups and scale-ups in a variety of industries. Paul's got some great observations, including lessons from biotech for insurtech, and it's worth staying on to the end to hear his predictions for what's coming up next. And if you haven't already discovered what we're up to at Instec London or would like to become part of our community, then do take a look at the website, www.instec.london. We're in regular contact now with over 15,000 people around the world from insurance and technology, big and small, new and old. And you'll also find our editor highlights of this interview on the website to read and share. And now back to Paul. Paul, it's fantastic to be talking to you today. You've got so much experience, it's sort of hard to know where to start. So I'm going to give a quick overview of all the things you've done. Then we're going to talk a little bit about your own background and then, of course, what you're doing at Guidewire. But in your life, you've been uh, an assistant professor of strategic management, uh, where you were focusing on uh, analytics and innovation or technology strategy. did 14 years at McKinsey, which gave you, obviously, a very good grounding what's going on around the world. Uh, six years at a, a Vari Capital, looking at advisory investment. Um, you were CEO of Analytics for Aon, and now you are Chief Innovation Officer at Guidewire. So uh, a lot going on, and really pleased to have you joining me. Well, Matthew, thank you for in- inviting me. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, you have quite a history in this industry, and I'm involved with uh, many interesting developments. So um, no, I'm looking forward to this and happy to be uh, talking with you about uh, insurance and analytics, uh, two of my favorite topics. Yeah, well, I'm sorry I happened to do this remotely and by audio. Last time we met, I think it was in a rather nice venue in London over a gin and tonic, I seem to remember. So um, right. hopefully we'll return to that at some point. Absolutely. Uh, so just briefly about Guidewire, you're known for your enterprise software and policy administration. You've got claims, you've got over 400 insurers that are clients of ours. You've also got Guidewire Marketplace, which is, which is really intriguing. And those offerings, I think, intersect with what you're doing with predictive analytics, risk insights, and business intelligence. But could you just talk a little bit about the areas of the business that you're looking after? Absolutely. 
Guidewire is almost 20 years old now. My part of Guidewire is uh, when I arrived just a little over two years ago, um, it was a fascinating couple of uh, investments, acquisitions Guidewire made, which was really adjacent to what they are focused on. Um, Eagle Eye Analytics was acquired uh, four years ago, and then Science, the back then the cyber modeling company. Things have expanded beyond that. I joined to lead up this new analytics thrust within Guidewire. We have a three-part mission within the broader mission. One is around data, make it more actionable, both internal and external data. Uh, The second part of this is embedded analytics to break down the barrier between transaction processing and maybe operations and analytics to embed it. Uh, We we can talk about it more, but we have this approach of sense-making, using models to really interpret very messy data. And so the second part is embedded analytics. And the third is this uh, data listening engine. We think as the world changes and gets more digital in many ways, there's a, businesses and households that frankly throw off a lot of data elements. And this data listening engine uh, allows us to look at this. It's just a different way of underwriting, really, you know, instead of having a questionnaire. And we can address new risks like cyber. Now, you mentioned marketplace. Now, part of this is a real commitment at the Guidewire kind of organization of advancing the art of understanding risk and managing risk. And so we have an innovation model that includes this marketplace, which allows us to collaborate with uh, interesting new, perhaps startups or other um, participants in the broader ecosystem, not just for Guidewire, but on behalf of Guidewire's clients. And those clients all over the world need a better way to link into this broader ecosystem. And so we have a, a marketplace concept that's, I think, as exciting as the core system moving into the cloud. I personally have a passion for working with entrepreneurs. Uh, you mentioned Avery Capital. That was a period in my career where I worked directly with many and I still maintain relationships. And so anyone interested in understanding risk, helping to manage it, um, you know, we're always open to, to talking. And there's a great opportunity, Matthew, for us to just compare notes on how things are developing you know, globally. Well, picking up on that, Avari Capital and just some of your work at McKinsey, you know, one of the things that's always fascinating for me when I talk to people is of all the choices they had in the world, they've uh, either ended up in insurance, I guess it depends what stage they are in their career, or, or they're currently working in insurance. So you know, what was it for you that when you looked out there at all the companies that you were involved with, you, you chose to follow a career into insurance? You're right. It's either they grew up in it or they, they stumble into it. I, I'm, I'm in the latter category. I'm married to a former actuary, and I have others in my family that were in, in the business, actually, but it wasn't something I was focused on. I was very much interested in technology with an engineering background, but also the innovation of businesses using technology. My doctoral thesis was back in the 70s and 80s, the big new technology was biotechnology, transforming what was then a chemical-based pharmaceutical industry. And so I always had that um, interest in a large, established, global, broad infrastructure and relationships. Pharmaceutical firms had regulatory issues. I mean, there's some similarities here with, with insurance. And biotechnology was just nipping at their heels at the beginning and suddenly, you know, threatened to really overturn the, what was then called the biological revolution versus the chemical-based pharmaceutical old guard. And when I joined McKinsey, I joined the Chicago office. 
And if you just look at a map, uh, if you pick another sector, you're on a plane a lot, uh, but there's a lot of things going on in insurance in Chicago in the Midwest, and it's a fairly short ride over to New York. Although that logic failed me because it turns out in my career over now 20 years, I've spent a lot of time on planes, but in some fairly nice places, including London, where uh, you and I had that gin and tonic. Uh, but that's how I stumbled into it. It was the, the challenges and the interesting dynamic of an industry that was an important part of society and commerce being threatened by lots of new ideas and seeing the dynamic play out. Um, and I've never regretted it. It's just a fascinating period we're living through. On that biotech one, just whilst you're mentioning that, I mean, if you look back at what the promise held then and where it's got to now, has that industry, has it sort of slowed down a bit? The reason I ask is there are some parallels which we'll talk a bit about later in sort of expectations on technology and, this, and also the, the speed of change that people have with new technology. So has biotechs have delivered on that early promise or has it also suffered from maybe too much expectation and uh, yeah, too much hype? Well, at one level, the biological revolution, biotech, has had an immense impact on medicine and uh, how we treat and um, for vaccines and for, for therapeutics. So at one level, it has delivered in really advancing that science. And I could spend multiple podcasts on that just because that's what I did my, my dissertation on. You know, the smart money back then was that the large traditional pharmaceutical firms had a model, had a mindset, and had a whole set of processes and infrastructure and people who grew up and got promoted thinking that way would never be able to adapt. And that led to investors coming in. And this was really the, the, the accelerant for what we know today as the modern venture capital industry. Uh, venture capital was very small, very niche, but Sand Hill, because a lot of this was happening in California, right in the Bay Area, people might not realize it, but it was biotechnology that generated the modern venture capital because money was being pumped into small entities. So this, Matthew, may resemble what's going on here. Startups with a, a lab, they were do thing, doing things on a test tube level, like pharmaceutical firms were working with immense volumes and they were doing little tests and little test tubes and vials and proving something, uh, attracting huge valuations. They were patenting things, uh, Genentech, Biogen, these Chiron, they were patenting things and intellectual property. I mean, the frenzy around capital and how things have developed was that there are some independent biotech companies, but Genentech was acquired by Roche. And the concepts were licensed or adapted. So people wrote off the traditional chemical-based companies. And it's not that they completely stamped out the smaller ones. And right now in the COVID environment, you see a bit of a race between some larger and smaller companies. But it became much more complicated, Matthew, than the, the story that the narrative back then was, oh, this old guard, traditional 19th century industry will fade out and this new set of companies, the wave will come in. And it hasn't been exactly like that. So two interesting developments, the development of what's venture capital, which is different, by the way, as all of the listeners here know, than balance sheet capital, like we sometimes talk about on the reinsurance side or, or alternative capital. The venture capital is going out there and you know supporting working capital needs. That got developed. And then you saw a very interesting hybrid 
And so yeah, there are many parallels. And I think our commitment and my excitement about the Guidewire's marketplace idea, it's a recognition of that, that it isn't going to be as simple as, oh, at the end, all the small companies will wither away and the large companies will kind of plot along and do more incrementally, nor will it be this revolution, but it'll be something in between. And I could have never predicted what would be happening in insurance when I started working in this sector while at McKinsey, but I'm pretty certain that that hybrid, complicated, you know, fuzzy way the industry develops will, will repeat itself here in insurance. I just want to come back to a couple of things you said earlier around data and pick up on that. So really intriguing way you describe it when you talk about sense-making of data. I mean, it's one of the, the areas that when people use the term big data and celebrate all the data that's out there, that's good, but it's only the start of the journey. And th that data has to provide actionable insights. And so that concept of sense-making, I think, is a very good way of thinking about it. And then also your point about data listening as well. But is, is there a sort of flip side that we need to watch out for, which is with all that data out there, it then creates a challenge to actually find the data that really does make a difference. And particularly in an area where, from an insurance perspective, there's established businesses, underwriters that are used to doing things in a certain way in a market that is quite competitive. So it's really hard to be able to sell insurance if you charge higher rates because the data suggests you should. So, I mean, what, what are you seeing where people are using data, but, you know, being able to get through the noise and make that intelligent or well, sense-making as you described it? What would be some examples of that? Look, this industry, we're, we're essentially swimming in data. It's just sitting in different data bases and it's uh, different units around the globe. And it's, so bringing that together is a data engineering task. But even after that, the, the real challenge is how do you interpret the data, understand it? Can you model it at scale? It's one thing, this reminds me of biotech. In fact, lots of things can be done at the test tube and at the vial level. It doesn't really work when you get it into a VAT level. The scaling up of analytics is complicated. And sense-making is doing this a, at a scale. The best example, the easiest one really to point at is in cyber. Cyber is, a, is kind of inherently data intensive. It's all about data, access to data and control and governance of data, your data health, and sense-making, understanding what the situation is. It's pre-event mitigation and post-event mitigation, pre-event pre uh, mitigation, post-event recovery. All of that has uh, a lot of uh, modeling and interpretation involved. Now, you raised, Matthew, this question of like, even if you had an insight uh, what can you do with it? Is it really actionable? If you really understood that this particular customer, household, or business has better risks, uh, would you just lower rates, which would reduce your premium, and you have to think about your cost structure? And if there was another entity that was slightly riskier, would you raise rates? And today's competitive environment, most markets are fairly competitive, you would probably have increased attrition. And so strategically, how to take action, the entrepreneurs who are starting up companies, you know, they will, they will intuitively know that having an insight is only half the battle. Uh, you've got to not only operationalize it, and then strategically, what exactly would you do with that? Because there are all sorts of implications of just the simple, well, we know this is more risky, we're going to charge more, or this we're going to charge less. There's all sorts of issues around um, 
understanding the cross-subsidization between cells and among cells that have different risk characteristics. But yeah, understanding the competitive dynamics is not traditionally part of when we think of sense-making, but it's an absolutely important part of taking action and creating value. But whilst we're on cyber, just more generally, yeah, it comes back to from one of my earlier observations about you know, the risk of hype or over expectations. So if we go back about five years, there was a sort of widely circulated number from one of the large insurance companies that by 2020, there would be $20 billion of premium for cyber. I mean, it's way below that. It's probably like about $6 billion. How do you think about that in terms of what does that mean for the future? Does it mean that the market is now treating cyber less importantly than it did? And also, you know, from a, from a modeling or building a business around that, that has implications as well. So do you think we're just in a sort of lull period and there is still going to be a lot more demand for cyber out there? Or is it just not such a big issue that people had originally expected it to be? It's interesting, Matthew, because uh, one of the large uh, global entities um, just had a white paper come out and it, it used the 20 billion in premium number, but it's for 2025 now. So <laughs> it's like one of those predictions of when we'll have the flying car, right? That it, we're going to have it at some point, but it, it wasn't, uh, I think originally the driverless car was something coming out in like 1950 and it kept moving. Uh, so I think it would be hard for anyone to conclude that the, the cyber risk uh, is not really there. We, we know it from firsthand experience. Any parent knows there's threats related to cyber, um, cyber bullying, what's happening in social media. And any even small business owner knows that if there are things that could happen that would lock them out of some system and large companies know that they've got very complicated supply chains, they invest a lot in protecting them. So I don't know if the question really is like, is that a threat? The real question is, can we as a sector understand it enough to provide risk management, uh, both the risk management on the services side and on the risk transfer side? And that's the number you and I are now talking about is the risk transfer component of it. So why has it lagged? It's hard. <laughs> I think anyone who is practical about it should have rec- or did recognize this is hard to do. It's uh, you know, we don't really have the right data, the historic, the historical data about this phenomenon. There's this sentient adversary that acts very differently than, let's say, um, flood or, or uh, windstorms. The scope is quite broad. It's amazing what the, the perils are within this landscape. And then there's this enormous aggregation risk. So, Matthew, I think it's surprising anyone was predicting it would be that it would grow that quickly. I, I mean, I think the underlying risk is there, but the the exposure is there. But this is hard. Now, I'm still optimistic. This is where people, CFOs, people who manage businesses, this is what keeps them up at night. How do they maintain their business models? How do they have access to their customers and suppliers? And it, it's got to be something we do. I think this behavioral approach that I've been focused quite a bit on here is giving us a way to address all four of the issues of do we have access to the right data, understanding ascension adversary, understanding the breadth and scope of the impact and harm, and then aggregation. We're just, um, just about to release a white paper on kind of the myths of cyber and 
why maybe at one point they weren't myths. They are real challenges and they continue to be challenges. But the myth is that we can't make progress. As you both know, just because a big loss hasn't happened, it doesn't mean it isn't out there and isn't a possibility. It's just, I think, part of the challenge is it's human nature to focus on the things we've seen, you know, and of course, most relevant recently, the pandemic. But just more broadly on that topic of intangible assets, you've all heard the figures around, we've now got close to 80% of corporate values are in intangible assets. It's still very hard to model. You know, cyber's probably the most modeled of those recently. Are you seeing anything else you know, outside of cyber in that area of intangible risks that you're, you think you might be able to help tackle that and you know, actually also support insurance? Because if you can model it, you can insure it. But if you can't model it, it's much harder to put capacity against it. That's absolutely right. I mean, you can't, insurance only works if you understand the, the academic activity that's creating the exposure, what the volatility of something of value and then you need the analytics to apply capital. So it's absolutely right. That is a challenge. But the, the one characteristic is that those tangible assets were owned by somebody, typically a business or a household owned a car, they owned inventory. And what they really wanted was access to the, the asset they owned. And so if something bad happened to it, you'd have to indemnify it. And so they would get access. And that's traditional insurance in, in a nutshell. Well, in today's world, we all know that there's a lot of something as a service. And so the new business model is I could get as a person or as a business, I can get access to something, which is really what I wanted. I don't necessarily need to own it. I can get access to it. That's a value. But our traditional insurance model is not really geared towards access. And, and if you look at what happened with uh, business interruption and what's going on with COVID, those restaurants needed access to something, nothing got physically damaged. And so you could see the disconnect. And so in the future today and going forward, and it is the 80% of the S&P 500 balance sheet, their assets are intangible. This is more important. And I think I started right at the beginning saying our overall mission is the relevance of PNC as a sector for all of us collectively. If we can't address this, it's, I think we'll be focused on a smaller and smaller part. In fact, we'll become small, smaller part of industry, society, and just be less relevant. Now, what are the intangible assets that are creating value through access? And those are things like reputation um, and understanding complex supply chains, intellectual property and data. Those are all intangible assets that are important parts. Some businesses, that's all they have. So yes, the cyber is maybe the, the tip of the spear. And we've learned a lot. And the science data listening engine has expanded beyond cyber. We're looking at other liability lines and, and uh, other areas where we could use this sort of behavioral analytic approach. But reputation, data, intellectual property, those are all things that we think give you access, give a company, let's say, a commercial entity, access to something to create value. And this is the future of insurance. We will have models for this. We need to collect non-obvious data and use different modeling techniques to understand how to interpret them. But Matthew, I'm confident we're, we're heading in the right direction and putting our investments in the right place. Well, I really like the way you, you characterize that. You, you take, a, you take a, a large fuzzy problem, which is how do we understand the risk of intangibles? And you've translated it into a much more tractable problem, which is how do we help 
policyholders, if you're an insurer, get access to what they need to continue with their lives or their business. And actually, what's you know what's so powerful about that? You sort of realise that they don't necessarily need what they had before to continue. They don't necessarily need to own the car. They just need to get access to the car. Or I guess with the restaurant analogy, you don't necessarily have to have people coming into your restaurants, but you need people you can deliver food to. And so it just it changes not just the way you model it, but the way you mitigate against it. I mean, it's really fascinating. And it actually sort of leads on to the other, other question I had for you, which is around the use of IoT, Internet of Things and sensors. And there's been a lot of discussion about the role of that. Intuitively, we all understand why it should be beneficial for an insurance company to collaborate or partner with their clients, whether it's people or businesses, to get access to data to help you know, with the mutual outcome of reducing the risk. But it is actually in practice, it's been quite hard for organizations to find ways to do that that's in the interest of both parties and you know, there's not a sort of asymmetric view of the risk or a, a cost that detracts from the benefits. So, so what, what are you seeing in that area? Are you seeing some things coming through that are actually going to be the future of collaboration around getting access to, da- to data from sensors and IoTs between insurers and their clients? Yeah, it, this has been, this is a classic case of the promise and the, the hype really outrunning the, the reality. Think about those telematics devices, the early ones that were put into vehicles. They were very expensive and you know, they captured a lot of data. It turns out it's, it's expensive and there are all sorts of concerns about putting devices in people who owns it. And think about the regulatory and legal implications of data after a, an auto collision. Does the body shop manufacturer insure the person? Who owns all this? There are a number of uh, problems, but the, the future will address them as an industry. We'll work with manufacturers. We'll be able to use the embedded sensors and all sorts of products. Now, Matthew, you know that you can't buy anything without it having to connect to your Wi-Fi and start sending, you know, a pencil probably has that now. I mean, everything in my house seems to want to connect to our network to be able to do something. But look, we've made progress in some areas. So those little OBD2 devices that the telematics sensors are in many people's cars now, they're providing information. They're just being used now for rating. But if you think about what they're being used for now versus what they could be, there are real implications, operational, the kind of data streaming from sensors that's not easily consumed by most insurers. We have an industry that has been set up on an annual cadence, maybe six month cadence. We, we work on batch mode. That's the one thing about IoT and streaming data. It's coming at you, it's flowing into you. And so just reconfiguring the use of it and, and the way you simplify flow information is you say, we're gonna give it a score. But you know, you lose a lot of the richness and texture and insight when you collapse the year of information that's flowing to you and you just say, well, just give me a single score and I'll use that in my underwriting. So I think there's a lot of development there. One of the concepts we're pushing is this idea of continuous digital underwriting, which means instead of thinking about we're going to underwrite and rate once every six months or 12 months, and we're going to use these truncated data elements that are collapsing the rich texture of streaming data, sensor data. Uh, we as an industry will move to continuous underwriting, which is only possible with this future of sensors. I'll say the, the most progress has been made by when I think about cyber, 
the science model uses data that's in sensors, but it's, it's done, it's not, it's, it doesn't require all sorts of investment to put anything into an entity we're underwriting because it's all publicly available. So, so Matthew, we'll make progress on devices and working with manufacturers and service companies. And, and there's all sorts of legal implications and, and costs associated with that. And we will get there as an industry. But I think the starting point is let's use the data that's in sensors already in the internet. The internet already has all that. That's how these search engines work. They're, they're combing through the internet. They're not putting devices in your PC or in my iPhone. Like Google doesn't do that, but yet they seem to know a lot about what's going on in the world. And so that's the model that science has taken. Until we put sensors in software and have software speak to us, code speak to us, and hardware speak to us through proprietary mechanisms, they're publicly available and non-obvious ways we can do this. And that's the start of the IoT sensor kind of era in insurance. And we'll use this for both risk transfer, understanding the exposure, but also risk management. You know, that's the benefit of using sensor streaming data. You could use it to reduce harm. It, it, like in telematics, if a person is driving very erratically, um, the, some entity, a, a risk company, could provide some pre-event, take some pre-event actions uh, to actually reduce harm. And that's the promise of uh, IoT and sensors. Uh, the challenge is there, I'm not dismissing those, but we're making progress and we're especially making progress when we could use truly digital ways, outside in ways to assess exposure. Yeah, I mean, I think what's so interesting about that is, is that concept of the data that's, that's free and freely available. I mean, it's rather like using the U.S. Geological Survey data for earthquakes to trigger parametric insurance. If you can get access to that free data, then it just reduces the cost of innovation. It's sort of open source data, isn't it? And then on your point about the connected pencil, I haven't yet come across anybody doing an insurance product around a connected pencil. But Paul, if you're interested in connected toothbrushes, then if you haven't seen our parametric insurance report, we, we do talk about a company that's using connected toothbrushes to reduce your dental insurance. I remember seeing them in one of these demo days or maybe at a, at a VC session. I use that example in different ways to show what sensors can do. And I don't know if there is a connected pencil yet, but uh, at some point I'd like it to tell me that I'm running short of ink or, or, or lead or I'm about to spell something wrong and like give me a little nudge and fix it. So that's the future. Um, we'll see. So if anybody out there has got a, an idea for a connected pencil, then they should contact Paul at Guidewire and you'll help them <laughs> get off the ground. <laughs> Good. Well, Paul, we're conscious we've used up quite a lot of your time. There's just a, a, one more question. I've got a couple more questions I've got for you. So one is, in terms of companies building technology, there is, a, I think, a balance between how well that technology fits into the existing workflow. So it's, and the way Andy Yeoman at Conceris describes this, I think it's very elegant. It's as if you wanted to take somebody uh, who is using a typewriter and get them into the new world. You just take the typewriter away and you give them an electronic keyboard and they've got amazing technology, but they're still typing on a quality keyboard as opposed to you've got something that actually needs the, the user to completely change their workflow, but could radically change what they're going to do as an output. I mean, for you, what's your, you know, all the years of experience you've had in this area in and outside of insurance, 
you know, what, what do you see as sort of the balance of success and likelihood of success between trying to fit within an existing workflow or try and be the hero that does something really different and changes the world, but you've got many more challenges to do that? We need to provide smarter inputs and insights into the current workflow uh, to help with um, accelerating perhaps and lowering the cost of what we have. Uh, the traditional pave the cow path approach. So the cow path is cobbled together with stone and whatever, you know, you could put asphalt on the cow path and things roll along a little better. Uh, but in parallel, you could think about, a, you know, putting a superhighway right next to it. It's on a completely different infrastructure. It goes straight. It's bigger. It, you could do a lot more. But the challenge is we all know that you know, it takes a lot of work to put a, a highway next to a path. And so, I think the practical thing is, and that's what I'm so excited about the, the marketplace because it allows, it's almost a crowdsourcing approach to innovation. You have point solutions that could help assist in operationalizing within largely the current workflow and make everything a little better, uh, whether it's around fraud or uh, using new sources to underwrite. Uh, different business intelligence tools. And so all that should be happening and will happen. And the challenge there, by the way, is it isn't so easy as operationalizing. That example that Andy had, who I met years ago um, in London, it's not easy to implement, not just handing a keyboard to someone with an insurance, everything is complicated, but we need to make progress on that. So I think both are important, but until we get to that second radical transformation of of the whole process and really understand from first principles, what is insurance? At its core, what is the product? <clears throat> and the product is quite ephemeral. It's this promise that you pay me money, I make a promise and you know something may or may not happen. Very difficult to understand how to price that, how to service that. But understanding the core principles of insurance and the concept of insurance I think will allow us to make progress. And we need this tool. We need a, we need a set of tools to be flexible enough to, let's say, um, address one of the major challenges of insurance today is scale. What's the minimum scale you need for some line to make money? And right now it's arguably very high. There's a lot of niche opportunities that lots of incumbent insurers would have to pass up because it doesn't reach some minimum scale for a quote impact. Well, if you have a very flexible infrastructure, you could take a you know, mass, mass customization approach that some retailers take where they design things, it's mass, but it's customizable and, and, and tailored. We should end up with an infrastructure that allows even a very large entity, a carrier, an insurer to be able to look within smaller areas and develop a, a tailored product for that use. We're not there yet, but that's the promise of putting that, I think what you're describing, this, this revolution of putting in whole new infrastructure. This is the lesson we started part of our conversation here on biotech. It turns out that the story was more complicated than either the new biotech startups would take over and essentially eat the lunch of all the traditional and those companies were around for hundreds. Some of them are hundreds of years old. And or it would be the other way around. They would crush the, the, the startups. Well, reality is a bit more complicated than that. There's a little bit of both that's happening. I think insurance has many of the same characteristics. 
I think there's plenty of opportunities for entrepreneurs to invest their time and energy and resources in creating these solutions that improve the current workflow and think carefully about how you actually operationalize it because showing something off in a pilot is not the same thing as adapting it for scaled up use. And there's an opportunity uh, to think about, you know, putting in the super highway. What, what does a first principles based approach to insurance mean? And how, how can we use today's tools, data and technologies to think about solutions that we can probably show off in, in new lines of business like cyber. This is the perfect time in history to do this because new exposures and new product needs, the demand is out there. And so putting the new process in place and showing it off in one line of business, one geography is at least conceivably possible today. And I'd be excited to talk to anyone who's listening, who is thinking about that sort of what is the superhighway that could work to bring capital and exposures together in an efficient way? Yeah, that is one of the core goals, isn't it? Bringing capital and exposure. But I also completely agree with your comment about scale. And I think that is one of the challenges that people underestimate when they're building a new product. And there's a reason why Lemonade had to go and was spending over $100 million a year on what is essentially a fairly straightforward product is to get the visibility and the scale that makes it sense. So I think there's yeah one angle or one, one side of the spectrum, we've got how do you create the infrastructure to scale? And the other side is how do you build the superhighway that is more efficiently connected more together? I will, Paul, we've, we've covered a, a lot in there. Uh, we could go on for a long more, lot more time and I'd you know, love a chance to go a bit deeper. But just before we wrap up, is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to just as a final word you'd like to bring to people's attention? Yeah, one of the things that uh, is uh, exciting us uh, at Guidewire is uh, if you just look across uh, kind of industries broadly, this idea of um, ESG, ESG, environmental, social, and governance um, measures so that uh, investors who have a particular Um, strategy to invest a particular way, there's a standardized way to understand who's following certain guidelines and has certain standards. Right now, there's a ton of demand around that. And there was a recent McKinsey white paper on this. There have been many that that describe the the increased attention that ESG factors and ratings have uh, from the investor side. And if I read a, a, a statistic that by August this year or mid-year, just a couple months ago, 40% of the analyst earning calls of S&P 500 companies, 40% of them had some discussion about diversity and inclusion, one of the elements of the ESG concept. And so it's interesting that this is going alongside everything else that's happening in society today with the pandemic and we've got different elections going on. ESG is is part of the, the mix. And you might ask, you know, what is, a, what is a technology partner for insurance companies? What can we do here? Well, it turns out that our science tool, which helps, among other things, address data hygiene, and part of that is data governance uh, for cyber, understanding the cyber threat, is one of the factors that's used for understanding ESG um, standards. And so we're partnering with S&P 
who've come up with an ESG rating uh, system that's in market now. And we contribute to um, kind of different elements of that, but it's an outside-in approach that really gives a measure of what is the data governance and data hygiene and how does that contribute to the overall um, resiliency of a company. And S&P does much more than what I just described because part of their ESG calculation are qualitative. They go in and have, uh, have experts discuss different elements. There are many elements within the broad ESG framework, uh, but data governance and data hygiene and uh, maintaining, essentially maintaining control. What are the behaviors that allow a entity to say, we have control over our data and how it's being used. And so this is an assessment of not just we have data, that's not the question, or we know where the data is and can use the data. That's not the question. We assume all companies have that. But the question is, well, what's your behavior around data? And how do you manage your data? Well, that's a very, that's a different thing. You don't count things when you try to assess behavior. And science has over five years developed an approach to quantify behavior. That's why we call it a behavioral approach. We don't count things. We actually assess behavior and changes in behavior over time. And so it's, uh, Matthew, since you asked, like, what other things are on my mind? What's happening all around us, you know, in society, it's, it's troubling in many ways. Uh, but it's, it's leading to changes and investor interest in, you know, some might call it ethical investing is, has been in the news for many years, but it's really coming closer to the front page. And this idea of an ESG rating system is fascinating. It's here, it's all around us. And to be relevant in society, we need an approach and we have to develop the tools and understand the data that are relevant for understanding this phenomenon. So I'm excited about what we're doing with carriers, uh, insurers around the world, uh, but also with other entities that are looking at data in this way. Excellent. Well, Paul, thank you very much for that ESG one. I mean, that is, as you said, a really important area. And I, I personally have seen how regulation drives innovation and, and the increasing requirements, whether it's from regulation or to shareholder pressure to report on those is definitely going to drive more metrics and more fact-based reporting. So that was good. Well, it, listen, I, I, we've covered an awful lot there. I'm very grateful for your time, Paul. Uh, thank, thank you very much. We will you know, put some links in the episode notes so people can learn or find some of the sources you described in there. And you know, hopefully some point in the future, we'll, one of us will be back on airplane and we'll uh, see each other face-to-face again and, and continue our discussion because it's always fascinating you know, hearing your take on the world and, and what's going to happen going forward. So thank you very much. Thank you, Matthew. It's been great as always. And I do look forward to catching up with you in person. I hope it's soon. Thanks, Paul. Take care. If you want to find out more about what's going on at Guidewire and in particular the Guidewire Marketplace, we also ran an event with Neil Betteridge from Guidewire, who is responsible for the Guidewire Marketplace. And you can find that on our website under the events section or on the Instec London Bright Talk channel. And if you want to find out how we select our guests for the podcast or just learn more about how we can help you tell your story and find your business partners, then please drop us an email, hello at instec.london or you can find me on LinkedIn, Matthew Grant.